If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome back to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are deep in the Clobber Passages series. And uh, this is our third episode in the series, and we can't wait to jump into it. My name is Keith Giles. I am uh, one of your many co-hosts. I'm the author of several books in the Jesus Un series, including uh, most recently Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming, uh, with a new one coming out hopefully very soon, uh, Jesus Unforsaken. Uh, and that one will be about the atonement and the cross, and uh, excited about that one. Also from choir, by the way. Um, but I uh, also want to make sure that my co-hosts uh, introduce themselves and say hello to all of you. So take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Katie Valentine. Uh, I'm an author as well of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. I'm also the founder of The Metaphysical Christian, a Facebook group. I'm an ordained pastor. I'm happy to be here. The topic for today is all about the women. This is going to be fun. Awesome. And I am Eric Day. I am also an author. And I want to say to Keith Giles, please slow the fuck down and let the rest of us catch up. <laughs> Can't do it, man. Uh, sorry, man. No, you, you're, you're awesome. Your stuff is great. Um, but I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion, and I'm the author of the upcoming books, Deconstructing Religion Part 2, which I like to subtitle, Burn That Shit to the Ground. But uh, it, it depends on what Ralph says. I like that. Uh, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I'm also um, finishing up a book called Love Forward moving humanity forward at the speed of thought, which I think is going to be interesting. And I'm also the host of the Forward Podcast, and that pretty much sums up the life of Derek. Well, Derek, I'm, I'm going to tell you what right now. Um, I wrote a book called Devoted as Fuck that Ralph, for some ungodly reason, decided to publish. So I think you're going to be good. And yes, that was my Sweet. that was my way of shamelessly plugging that book. So um, yeah. I, I'm Matthew DiStefano, for those who don't know, and I am super excited to get into, uh, I guess this is part three of our Clobber series. So uh, yeah, let's, let's kick it off. Stoked to be here. It's Clobber time. Hotline. 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 Ah. Derek. It's time for the hotline. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Derek is asleep. Derek is asleep at the wheel. <laughs> is this amateur hour? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, apparently. Apparently. Um, so anyway, if you would like to contact the Heretic Happy Hour crew, you can do so by exercising finger dexterity of that index finger of yours and dialing 240-343-7379 once again. for the slow children in the back. So right now, roll that beautiful voicemail footage. Hello, uh, I'm Kate from Australia. I move around a lot with work, but I'm currently at home in Melbourne. I've been binging your podcast since I found it four months ago. I listen when I'm driving or exercising or doing housework or whenever I'm not required to engage with other people. Anyway, I think I've finally caught up. I love your new series on Cobber Passages, and I wonder if you'll do an episode on metaphysical practices. There are passages in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Daniel, Isaiah, and Micah that speak against astrologers and fortune tellers. There are passages in Matthew, Acts, Paul's letters, and Revelation 
that also seem to speak against false prophets, in air quotes, and those who use magic and divination to deceive people. However, like you, Katie, I've found many metaphysical practices to be of great benefit. I'd be grateful if you'd please help me to navigate some of the clobber passages and to hear them in a different way to what I've always heard them. Thank you so much for all that you are and all that you do. You're an endless source of affirmation and amusement for me. Bye, guys. I like wow. the last word of amusement, of admiration yeah. and amusement. That's so great. What a fun um, what a fun text uh, voicemail. Um, yeah, let me kick it off. I, would, I can address this really briefly. And if my co-hosts are open, we can, I'm sure we can um, arrange for a time and a date to maybe do an episode around that. That would be really fun uh, for me. Hell yeah. And, uh, the irony is I mentioned the metaphysical Christian in my kickoff today. I had no idea what the voicemail was. So um, that's a little synchronicity. That's what we call it in that world. Yeah. You know, I think what we can see, um, at least from my perspective in scripture around those practices, around um, some some parts of scripture, like, yes, practice the divination, others say not to, is we actually see a diversity of opinion. And when we kind of look at things that pop up um, through the scripture, anytime when scripture says, don't do this, it's a guarantee that people were doing it. So I always have to ask, um, who's writing that? Why are they writing it? Who are they speaking to? And why is there this prohibition? And then we look at when those practices seem to be admired, and we need to ask the same questions. And it's somewhere in that healthy balance that we can find our you know, our inner truth around that. Hmm. Thoughts? Thoughts, prayers, well, concerns? Yes. You know, me personally, I'm studying at the Hogwarts Correspondence School uh, for Wizardry. Uh, I'm also looking at tighten, at tightening up my alchemy. No, seriously. Uh, I, I think that 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 we really ought to address some of the these metaphysical things. And to Katie's point, you know, what is what was the target audience? Why were these things being said? And is this something that actually was considered in the original text, or was it something that was added subsequently? in the process of canonization who knows hmm. yeah and and this is gonna um this is gonna kind of play what i'm gonna say is gonna play into uh what we talk about today but and and this may not help the uh the caller um but i, I don't care what the bible says most of the time like so if there's these clobber passages against x y or z like it it for me, it's all about direct experience in life, and that is kind of our epistemological starting place. That is like how we know what we know uh, is through direct experience, and and then the Bible is secondary. So, I mean, I I don't know. I don't get into the, like the metaphysical stuff too much, not like Katie does. But like for me, it's like the, if that's what you're into, like yeah, do it. Yeah, I I really don't. Uh, this is an area that I would be more of a, a learner and a listener, most likely. But I'm curious, and that's an interesting idea. Uh, for a series coming up. So, and by the way, just thank you. I love your accent. That was a beautiful, yeah. encouraging voicemail. Well, she has a very yeah. musical voice. Yeah. I, I absolutely loved it. It's a very pleasant call. And by the way, um, uh, to our caller, that my wife is a Reiki practitioner. And, um, and, and so, you know, from the Christian standpoint, we might be considered to be, you know, I don't know, heretics or maybe worthy of being burned at the stake, you know, that, that sort of thing. All, yeah. all the above. <laughs> all of yeah. I'm a, and I'm a Reiki master teacher. So, um, you know, lis listeners, um, one of the, um, it's not associated with the podcast, but do feel free to join the metaphysical Christian, uh, Facebook group. We talk about this kind of thing all the time. Yeah. yeah and I'll do, I'll do Facebook lives. I'll kind of walk people, walk, walk people through my, my interpretations, but it's really most important that you do find your own inner truth around it. So that's what I love to help people do. 
I haven't joined yet, Katie, but I plan on it because I I'm love your whole take on metaphysics within the sphere of Christianity. Come on over. It's a great group. Very supportive. And I like you. So does that mean does that mean we have time for a text? Do we have a text next? Yes. Roll that beautiful text footage. So it says here, hey, hey all, it's the dude from Michigan. Again, stopping in the middle of a section to write this. Alexander John, wow. His description of the gospels, open parent, purpose, closed parents, for lack of a better analogical word, liberating my mind and unfolding a more clear understanding of my own internal feelings. As I am listening to this in relation to LGBTQ, I'm referencing back on my youthful encounters with people affirming this moniker inside. I always felt completely comfortable with them. I never felt threatened or feared them, but because of the things and the way I was taught, I was conflicted. I pushed down and ignored my good loving affirmations within me because the theological dogmatic information I consumed said these feelings were of the devil. To hear AJ talk about the Aramaic language, not having a word for wrong or right. Anyway, back to listening and thank you all for your podcasting and writing. And most of all, your loving dude from Michigan. That is straight white male that used to pretend being afraid of LGBTQ, figuring out how to undo decades of brainwashing, signing out until next time. Best to all, Patrick. Yeah. Well, thank thank you, Patrick. And and again, this is going back to my point. Like, you're pushing down the things that you feel, and you feel you feel love towards people. You feel comfortable towards people, but it's the things that were taught that get in the way of that. So that's what I'm saying. Like, flip that. Like, we got to flip that shit. Like, like Patrick has done, and it's like, it's all. It's you know, you start with your experiences. So when we experience LGBTQ, we love them. You know, and then and then we deal. We can deal with the Bible if that's what we're into. But you know, so thank you, Patrick, for that. that yeah, thank you. That was awesome. I'm not into the Bible at all, but um, but I'm really into Patrick's comment here, and and I really empathize with what he said because growing up in you know straight heterosexual black male in Detroit, you know, it's like this whole thing about homosexuality or bisexuality. This was a, a, a horrible taboo. Um, and you were just taught that this was wrong and you don't do this and you don't hang around people that do this. And, and, and listen, I had a cousin growing up and this is a true story that he was going to babysit us while my parents were going out, all the adults were going out. And this particular cousin was gay. Everybody knew he was gay. And, but when my dad found out that, uh, he was going to be babysitting, he was like, no, uh, I'll stay, I'll, I'll sit this one out. And he decided to stay home and, uh, because he was like, you know, my kids aren't going to be exposed to that. But again, my, my thing is, is that once you experience the company of people and, and you're able to do this without the baggage and you see them as human beings, as just people that love and want to be loved. And then you're, you're able to put aside all of your preconceived notions about sexuality. And, and, and me personally, like I said, I've, I've said this before, I don't like tall women. I don't. It's not my thing, right? Uh, but then again, I don't like dudes either. And it's pretty much the same thing. It's just, you know, my preference. 
So, but, but, you know, there are people that love tall women and people that love short women and people that love tall guys and short guys, and it's all good. Awesome. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, I love that this is helping um, helping you deconstruct all of those decades and that you're trusting your own inner truth. I think this is about the, the time that I said that already in, in this podcast. But yeah, it's helping you reclaim what you always knew um, in the, you know, in your heart space um, and reaching out with that Jesus love. So that's amazing. So great. Well, we're, um, I think it's about time to move on to our heretic of the week. Y'all are going to love this guest. So let's get to it. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Schrader. I'm a doctoral student at Duke University, and I was once called a heretic by a Catholic colleague. Hi. 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 We are, as you can tell, we are so excited to have you on the Heretic Happy Hour, but we truly are, actually. Uh, Don't let that fool you. Uh, yeah, we are. We are so excited to have you uh, as our heretic of the week, Elizabeth. Um, so, but we, you know, to start off, we just have to know um, why would anybody call you a heretic? Well, in that case, it's it's mainly because I'm looking at um, manuscripts of the New Testament, especially um, changes in some of the oldest copies that we have of the Gospel of John, and I'm arguing that the text was changed. Mm. And I'm suggesting that um, the text is supposed to say, or that the evangelist wrote something different from what our Bibles say. And that, of course, is questioning the received text of the Word of God. And so some people might consider that to be a kind of heresy. I'm a member of the Episcopal Church, and nobody in my church has ever called me a heretic. They're always very (laughs) interested in what I have found. So it depends upon who I'm talking to. (laughs) I think I know that guy that that called you a heretic or someone just like him, but yeah. (laughs) We all know that guy. Yeah, yeah. we all know that guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm curious, was this was the person who called you a heretic or the kinds of people that call you a heretic? Um, are they are they bothered by this or was it a little tongue in cheek? Um, you know, it's I think that it's his true opinion, but I think he he thinks he he wasn't doing it in an accusatory way because he recognizes that I'm in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion and he's in the Catholic Church. And so it's not as though he can do any harm to me by saying that. So he was kind of in a lighthearted way, but I think that's that's probably his his judgment. Um, yeah. It's a little yeah. bit of fun rivalry between the different expressions. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of fun. Yes. <laughs> well, that's kind of the problem with the whole heresy. You know, when one Christian calls another Christian a heretic, what they're not understanding is um, they are probably someone else's heretic. Because really, mm-hmm. it means it's kind of come down to just mean um, you believe something different than I do. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. he does have the force of Catholic doctrine behind him, like, no. fair enough. But at the same time, it's just sort of like, I am interested in what the evangelists of John wrote. I mean, that that seems like that shouldn't be a heretical, like, uh, pursuit. Um, If we want to know what the evangelists wrote, um, nobody nobody should be considered a heretic for wanting to know what the text was. When anyone should be considered a heretic, it's whoever wrote the Gospel of John. Oh, begin a lot with, of people right? thought that. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time for that gospel to be totally accepted. It was still being right? debated in the second century. Yeah. Right. And, it's, yeah, and it's, it's interesting that in this case, you were called a heretic simply for doing like almost historical work rather than hmm. necessarily theological. Normally it's kind of 
the heresy charge is like in the theological rather than, hey, I'm just looking at this as an historian. Well, yeah, I mean, I have some some exegetical ideas as to what it could mean. Um, I'm it, it has to do with Mary Magdalene, <laughs> who, of course, is often associated with a lot of heresies. So I guess that's part of it as well. But I'm I'm suggesting that um, that the text of John might have been altered to suppress Mary Magdalene's authority. That's really where I'm going with this, and that in itself. The idea that, um, first of all, that that could have been accomplished by the copyist, and second of all, that the way it turned out was not the greatest, best way that it should have been. Um, those, those in themselves are challenging um, to certain institutions. Yeah, and see what that's so fascinating because you would think, on the one hand, anybody, uh, any Christian would be should be interested in the kinds of things that you discovered in the text, of some of the oldest ones, right? And so. When people get upset, it's mostly because it's challenging some of their assumptions about the text mm-hmm. uh, that are, it's kind of exposing that some of those assumptions might not be the right kinds of ways to think about mm-hmm. um, the scriptures yeah. in the first place. So we do have a kind of a messy, um, you know, scripture, you know, Old and New Testament. Um, and there are variances in the text, uh, depending on which one you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, there were th- this whole idea that people were copying things and copies of copies and, and, and kind of, this yes. is kind of what you tripped on, which is so fascinating because you weren't really, um, you weren't really, uh, officially sort of a New Testament scholar when you tripped no, over, right? Not at all. No, I was a, a songwriter. I was a musician. Um, I lived in Brooklyn and I wrote a song about Mary Magdalene, which was really weird because I'm not a Christian artist. I'm just like a pop singer. So I toured with Jewel. Like I'm like the kind of person who would like, you know, it's it's like sort of like, you know, a girl with her piano and, it's, and I'm writing songs about, you know, love and life. I'm not like a, a Christian artist writing songs about about Christian, about saints. That's just not really my style. So I was, I was surprised because, you know, you can't always control the songs you write. Songs just sort of show up. And, um, so after I wrote the song, I was like, that's really weird. And so I went to the Brooklyn public library and I checked out the complete idiot's guide to Mary Magdalene. And, um, after reading that book, I was just like, oh gosh, there's all this stuff I didn't know about. And I just had this thought in my head. I knew that she was the most, Mary Magdalene is the most prominent in the gospel of John because of her scene with Jesus in the garden when the risen Jesus appears first to her in John 20. I knew that there was that really important scene with her. And and I just had this idea. I was like, you know, I wonder if I want to look at the oldest copy of the gospel of John and see if anything has been changed. That was just this thought that I had, which is, you know, and it's, I don't think I'm the first lay person who had that thought, but apparently I'm the first person to really stick with it because <laughs> now I'm doing a doctorate at Duke University and now I'm a New Testament scholar. So, okay. Um, everything just completely changed. But what ended up happening was I did end up getting to look at um, a transcription of Papyrus 66, which is the oldest copy, near complete copy of the Gospel of John. And in that manuscript, which was copied around 200 AD, you do see that the name Mary has been crossed out two times in that copy. Cool. So this this is you've said the magic words already for our listeners, which is Mary Magdalene. And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, people really loved, uh, and myself included, really love to dive into her. Such an interesting, pivotal figure. 
Um, and so many, uh, she gets mentioned outs in so many writings that are not included in the New Testament yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I think longtime listeners are going to be really familiar with the idea that there's many manuscripts and, and stuff like that. But maybe we can just break that down for, for a minute mm, or two. Sure. Um, yeah. And so one of the things that just may be helpful for listeners is that we don't have what we call autographs. We don't yeah. have the original text of like anything in mm-hmm. the Bible. All we, mm-hmm. we have copies and copies and copies. Yeah. Right. And so that, that may be helpful to know. And um, from, for the New Testament, we have around 5,000 different yeah. manuscripts, right. Ranging from like, the size no of stuff. You know, lots of stuff. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> from the size of a postage stamp to, to whole, com- almost, you know, complete, that was what, what we call them now, the New Testament. Yeah. And so Elizabeth, you're looking at um, some of these, a like P66, Papyrus 66, mm-hmm. um, the oldest, almost complete got, um, text of the of the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And how amazing that you got into that from your songwriting. I love it when artistry and scholarship come together. <laughs> um, that is so cool. Yeah, so this is the story of, you're, you're looking really specifically at the story of the Lazarus story. Yes. And Lazarus' yes. sisters are mentioned there. And so tell us like over broad overview, what's your what's your working theory? Yeah, well, so um, when I started looking at Papyrus 66, of course, I went to the Mary Magdalene passages first, which are in John 19 and John 20. And so, and I didn't find anything in the transcription. And by the way, I was doing this with, with, with an interlinear study Bible because I didn't know Greek. Um, and so, uh, but then because I'd read the Complete Idiot's Guide to Mary Magdalene, I knew that some people thought that Lazarus's sister Mary, that is Mary of Bethany, was Mary Magdalene, that some people have thought that. So I'm like, well, I better look there too. It was actually the last place that I looked in Papyrus 66. And it was there that I saw, um, first of all, in John 11, verse one, you can see that the name Maria is changed to Martha. And that's just a difference of one letter um, in the Greek, that iota, which is like an I, is changed to a theta, which is like a th. So Maria is changed to Martha in John 11, 1. And then in John eleven three, 3, there's a woman's name um, that looks like it might have been Maria. Um, it's hard because it's completely scratched out. And it's changed to say, hi, Adelphi, which means the sisters. In addition, all the verbs are changed from singular to plural in that verse. And so as a total layperson, when I saw this, I saw the name Mary being crossed out and changed to Martha and then changed to the sisters. My first intuition was it looks like they're adding Martha to the story. That's what it looked like. And, um, I, you know, I, I grew up going to church. I knew, you know, the story of Martha and Mary in Luke's gospel, where Martha is sitting at, uh, sorry, where Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet and Martha is cooking. And Martha asked Jesus if Mary would help her. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Maria, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her, right? So I knew that there was this other story about these sisters in Luke's gospel. And I was like, okay, so that's a different author. Luke is a different author and he's writing about these two sisters who, by the way, do not have a brother. Right. And, and I had this idea. I was like, is it, are they taking, I mean, literally it never would have occurred to me if I hadn't seen the papyrus with my own eyes, because everybody always puts Mary and Martha together. I mean, Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha, like literally it never would have occurred to me to separate those two women. It's just that when looking at the papyrus, I could see that it looked as though Martha was getting added to the story. And so, um, if you ask where the idea came from, it came from papyrus 66, from the activity of the scribe in, in that papyrus. And you know, what's interesting is, um, I don't think most of our Greek Bibles, like the Greek editions that we have today, tell us this. 
actually the the Novum Testamentum Greche of the the Nestle Aland edition. Um, they do actually in the footnotes. That's where okay. you gotta go. So they'll, tell, they'll they'll give give a clue that this one papyrus, but um, John, in, in John eleven, yeah, and it's it's different. Yeah. It's actually interesting because the name is crossed out. So in in this twenty seventh edition of Nestle Aland, it says that the name crossed out is Maria. And in the more recent edition, the 28th edition, it says the name crossed out is Martha. So even they're not sure what the name is that's crossed out. But it, but it, because it's so completely um, erased, you can just kind of see that there's a row and an alpha. You can see that there was a name under there. Um, I actually was able to meet with the editors of the Nestle Alon Greek edition in Münster, Germany in 2019. I spoke with them for over an hour about this. And I, I hope. I think that they will probably update the apparatus to reflect some of the problems, not just in Papyrus 66, but in, there are dozens of manuscripts with problems around Martha. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So it's, uh, it's, uh, dozens of manuscripts is significant. So yeah. So just for listeners. Really like, significant. Yeah. Like one of the ways we kind of decide like what goes in, um, the Greek edition of the Bibles that we have upon which most of your English translations will be based, not all, but most uh, will be based on these editions that come out. And so Correct. one of the, yeah, one of the criteria is like how often does um, a significant variation occur? So dozens of times gets a little more weight. Yeah. And the thing yeah. that's interesting, I'm suggesting, um, af so I, after I found this, I decided to enroll in, a, in an MA program at General Theological Seminary in Manhattan. So I just moved from uh, Brooklyn to Manhattan, which was nice. I got to live in this beautiful campus. You guys should go to General Theological Seminary if you're ever in Manhattan because it's gorgeous. I was like, I want to live here. Um, so I did an MA thesis when I was there, and I was able, by studying under Deirdre Good, who was my master's thesis advisor, I was able to um, access hundreds of transcriptions of the Gospel of John. And of course, I had to learn Greek and also some old Latin manuscripts of John. And um, the thing is, is that because I'm arguing that a character was added, it means that it's unlike most textual variations where you're always looking at the same verse and you're always finding the same kind of like variants, you would see weird things popping up in weird places. Like some manuscripts of John 12, 2, which say that Martha served the supper where Lazarus was at table after he's raised from the dead. Some manuscripts would say that Mary served that supper. Or some manuscripts would list Lazarus first in John eleven five. There's a list of the Bethany the Bethany siblings in John eleven five, and randomly some of those manuscripts listed Lazarus first. One manuscript says Lazarus and his sister, and I'm like, that might be the right reading because there's just one sister in that manuscript. That's an old Latin manuscript, Codex Colbertinus, or you might get. Um, a dative feminine singular in the Greek in John 11, verse four. Sorry, I'm getting really Greek and dorky right now. But sometimes it's very clear in like a 12th century Greek manuscript that it, it says when Jesus heard, he said to her, you can see from the accents that this word aute is functioning to point to one woman. Whereas in your, um, in your critical edition, it will say that the word haute is there, which is a nominative feminine singular, which doesn't point to a woman. It's talking about this sickness. I'm getting really Greek and dorky right now. I apologize for that. But I'm saying that the, the textual problems manifest in a plethora of ways. It's not just that Marys are changed to Marthas, though we get that, or that Mary appears instead of Martha. Sometimes you get name switches in lists, or you get different, like sometimes you get singular verbs where you expect plural, or you get a reference to one woman where you expect no reference to a woman. Yeah. And so it's not only verse one, 
It's, oh, not at all. Yeah, we see this popping up through time and in different yeah. manuscripts, all hinting towards a potential earlier, um, a, an earlier autograph, which we don't have, which may say something different yeah. um, than the compilations that we get together, which I think is cool. And I'll, um, I'll, I'll brag on Elizabeth just for a moment. And one of, um, since we're both in the New Testament world, um, your article came up um, in my um, in my purview, I don't know, about a year ago. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And then I looked at it and I was like, this is a 30 page single space article. Do I have the time? And I thought, yes, I do have the time. And so I took about two hours and read through it, it was fascinating. So yeah, so for me, this is really, um, this is really fun to be able to talk about this. That makes me so happy that it's finding its way into scholarly circles. Because sometimes you publish something and people don't hear about it. And, I, and I'm like, I think this really matters. <laughs> um, like you can actually construct almost the entire uh, chapter of John 11 and the beginning of John 12 without Martha. You have to cobble it together from different manuscripts. It's called an eclectic text when you're cobbling it together from different manuscripts to create a new version. But you can get almost, not quite the entire thing, but almost the entirety of John 11 and 12 without Martha from real readings in real manuscripts. All right. So Katie and Elizabeth, I know you can dork out on this stuff for hours upon hours, but I've got to ask the why question. Like why, mm-hmm. why in your opinion was this changed? Why mm-hmm. is there, is there some sort of grand conspiracy behind it? Or is there, mm-hmm. is there, is there what, what do you think is going on here? Well, I don't think grand conspiracy is quite the right word. I would more call it early editorial activity. <laughs> That's more what I would say. And I think um, maybe the key, by the way, it's not just manuscripts. It's also church fathers quotations that say that uh, Mary did things that your Bible would say Martha did. I think that the key <clears throat> may be in um, a patristic quotation from Tertullian, who was one of the earliest church fathers. At the beginning of the third century, he wrote a treatise called Against Praxius, which is like a defense of Christianity. And he goes kind of through the Gospel of John, and he says that Mary gave the Christological confession of John 11, verse 27. Every manuscript of Against Praxius gives that confession to Mary. And I think that that's extraordinarily important because... um, there's a very similar confession. In fact, going back to antiquity, these two confessions have been compared between the confession that the woman gives in John 11, verse 27, and Peter's confession in Matthew 16, verse 16. Whoa. Yeah. That pause, holy pause. Because that's really significant when we talk about like implications for ordination of women, for women's roles in the church. Yeah. Everyone pause, consider this. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. I appreciate that, Katie. Yes. Yes. That's that's where I'm going with this because um, so in John eleven twenty seven, 27, uh, your Bible would say that Martha says, um, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, the one coming into the world. So she is the first person and it's considered the central confession of the gospel of John to say that Jesus is the Christ. She identifies him as such, and she's the one who names it. And um, like I said, now, actually, I don't have any, I have not found any manuscripts yet. I've only looked at 250 manuscripts, and there's 5,000. I have not found any manuscripts yet that say that Mary gave the confession. But Tertullian, who obviously had a copy way older than anything we have, because he was writing in like 210 AD, Tertullian says that Mary gave that confession, okay? Mm -hmm. And going back as far as the records go, People always wondered if that Mary was Mary Magdalene, okay? Mm-hmm. We, we have lots of people, um, we know Hippolytus of Rome and the Manichaeans who are third century people, they thought that Mary of Bethany was Mary Magdalene. So as far back as that goes, people thought that. 
Meanwhile, in uh, Matthew's gospel, Peter, is at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the right answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And of course, you guys, especially if you're Catholic or you were Catholic, you know what the implications are because that's considered to be a proof text oftentimes for the um, authority of Peter in the church, because Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Um, So that's, that's a central proof text for Peter's authority in Matthew 16, 16. And 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 just for non-Catholics in the group too, that, that also translates into papal authority today. It does. Yes. We have a lot, we have a lot of listeners, a lot of listeners. um, The only thing worse than being an atheist would have been to be a Catholic. So (laughs) (laughs) got it. Okay. Um, so, so that's a, so Peter is given a huge amount of of authority in Matthew's gospel. What I'm suggesting is that Lazarus's sister, Mary, who, if Martha were not there, would far more likely be Mary Magdalene because she's so similar, all the same, very similar things happen in John 11 as happen in John 20. There's a woman named Mary. She's crying. She sees somebody that she loves rise from the dead. Um, actually Jesus says, uh, where have you laid him? And then like a mirror question is Mary Magdalene asks Jesus in John 20, where you have laid him. Mm-hmm. So there's like these mirror, like, and, and very direct, I think there's seven exact textual parallels between John 11 and John 20. And I'm saying that's no accident. The author of John is encouraging the reader to identify Lazarus's sister, Mary, as Mary Magdalene. It's very subtle. Also remember, she then anoints Jesus in John's gospel. Jesus says, leave her alone. Let her save it for the day of my burial. There's only one Mary that goes to Jesus's tomb in John's gospel. That's Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying that the author of John is implying, without stating directly, possibly knowing it's going to be controversial. The author of John is implying that this Mary who anoints Jesus, I'm saying that in the earliest text, she also gave this confession of Jesus as the Christ. So similar to, P- to Peter's confession in Matthew's gospel. So imagine if the same woman gives the central confession of the gospel of John, then anoints him, then shows up at the cross, doesn't abandon him. Then she's the only person to go to the empty tomb on Easter morning. She's the first person that the, re- the risen Jesus appears to, and then she gets an apostolic commission. I'm saying that is a very prominent character. Yes. And comparable yes. to Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. But I think it'd be interesting to kind of lift up what what are some of the implications of this? I think we, we've hinted at that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the second century, there was sort of clearly or, or maybe not clearly, but um, unclearly, clearly, uh, a group of people who was ceding some more authority to this Mary Magdalene tradition, um, which has a lot of implications for the status of women in this emerging thing that we now call the church. Mm-hmm. Um, it may have implications for us today. This, this may depart a little mm-hmm. from your research, but I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can kind of um, give us some of your thoughts around that. Maybe we can just have a really brief conversation. You know, what what's the impact of this on our understanding of early Christians, and especially those of us who do look to these stories, whether they're in the Bible or not, about what what does it say about us now? Well, one of the first things that I that I really want to call people's attention to, occasionally people are like, this is some feminist agenda, this is some modern like view trying to like look at the Bible. And it's like, 
I don't know, guys. If you look back at the second century, you've got documents like the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, and they show that there were some problems with Mary Magdalene and precisely Peter um, in those stories. I'm not saying that these are historical documents or even that they should be considered as scripture, but they're reflecting certain debates that were happening in the church. And if it were just one document, you could say, oh, that's one crazy author. But it's there's independent attestation. It also comes up in the Pista Sophia, which is a slightly later document, third or fourth century. So the fact that it's that um, in the Gospel of Thomas, um, where Peter um, tells Jesus that Mary should leave them, in the Gospel of Mary, where Mary has like a vision and then Peter gets really angry and he he says that she should be quiet. Um, and uh, in the Gospel of Philip, the disciples are jealous of Mary Magdalene. And then yeah. in the Pista Sophia, um, Peter just really wants, he tells uh, Jesus to, to make Mary basically ask her to, to, to leave and be quiet. So it, these, are, these are, the fact that you get so many different documents reflecting this means that there was probably something happening, right, in the earliest part of the church. And, but there, and we, as we all know, there was different strands of the church that were competing for authority. And the one that won was the one that Constantine ended up approving um, in the fourth century, sort of the uh, proto-Orthodox, as they've been called. But, you know, we know there was like Marcionites and Valentinians and Ebionites. There was all these different kinds of Christianities at that time. And, um, and we even have heresiologists saying that some people followed Mary. Some people followed Salome. Um, so, so we know that in the very earliest parts of Christianity, there were people who thought that women should have a certain amount of authority. But those who kind of were sanctioned by the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century, they did not think so. So it's sort of like um, the winners write the history. Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately, those winners seem to mostly be male. <laughs> they were all male. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for, for me, I mean, as far as the implications of it, um, I think it's just, a, and I should also say, I haven't proven that Martha was added to the Gospel of John, but um, there is a lot of really weird data around Martha in the manuscript. So I have made a competitively plausible hypothesis that is being taken very seriously in really high up circles at this point as a, as a possibility. Um, it's It's not as though it's easily disproven. There are so many problems with Martha. All the fact that you, also the fact that you can reconstruct the text without Martha means mm. that we just have to, we have to have the question there. And I think it's just something for us to think about, you know, is this um, only male voices making decisions? Was that the way that Jesus wanted it? Or was that the way that Peter wanted it? Yeah. 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 Those are all fascinating, fascinating questions. And it's, um, I know our listeners are going to, um, be resonating with this. I know uh, one of our former hosts, Jamal, is probably regretting right now that <laughs> that he left the show because he. Um, we've had some great episodes on Mary Magdalene. So uh, tell our listeners and specifically, of course, Jamal, um, where people can, can can check out this work. And um, do you have a website? Are you on social media? Yeah, you- I do. Um, Elizabeth Schrader is my website, elizabethschrader.com. Um, my Twitter handle is at Libby Schrader, L-I-B-B-I-E underscore S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R. Um, and uh, also, um, if you want to email me, elizabeth.schrader at duke.edu, I actually do have a newsletter. Um, and so some people 
might want to um, stay. Like I, for instance, I give a lot of presentations. I'm giving a presentation at the North American Patristic Society. I've got a couple of papers out for publication right now. So if you want to hear um, updates, that's uh, you can sign up on my newsletter. Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah, Sweet. thank you guys for the opportunity. This is fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, just in respect to your, you know, proving or not proving, y'all, scholarship doesn't work like that. Like what Elizabeth oh. has done is help move the needle and yeah. ask new and better mm, questions. Thank that's you for always, that. Yeah, that's always what we're doing in scholarship and, and asking questions. I feel like that's what hopefully the podcast is helping people do, right? We're helping each other ask better questions so that we can get better answers. That's the only way to do it. So thank you so much for this work. Yeah, thank you, thank guys. You. I really appreciate your interest in it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, okay. take care. Okay, bye, guys. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. My new hero is Elizabeth Schrader. Wow. Elizabeth, great, great research. Um, amazing. I mean, I'm just blown away uh, by the work you've done. And, and wow, just, just amazing. I'm excited to hear more, uh, more from her in the future. But that was awesome. I can't wait to read the finished book. I've um, been excited about the scholarship, about this work for a long time. So that was amazing. I'm so glad that we were able to have her on the show. Yeah. And really a perfect guest um, for today's episode. You know, so y'all ready yeah i'm ready but i feel like i we definitely would be remiss if we don't let katie kick this off i will happily happily kick this out women ladies this is about the girl power today in our series on clobber passages we're talking about some of the passages that have been used to clobber uh women and try to keep try to keep women down and in some kind of place that we are really not content to be. So we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty. We are going to talk about some of the passages that have been used to clobber. Um, Every woman, every man, every person um, listening to this has heard these at some point in time. So they're not going to be a big surprise. We're going to break those down, but we're also going to talk um, a bit about women affirming passages in scripture and how women and men uh, and everyone might see women through a new lens and a new light how scripture may actually uh, empower women. So let's talk about it. I would I would love to just hear from everyone, you know, like first impression, what's our first impression? What are the problems that we're dealing with? Uh, and we'll get into the solutions later. So let's kind of give a big overview. Where Where is everyone on this topic? What do we need to explore today? Well, I would just want to kind of bounce off what you just said, Katie. You know, the, the, the problem that I see, because it's what I grew up with in the church environment I grew up with, um, theologically, it was basically... One or two passages, which we are going to get into some of them specifically, and 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 these one or two passages in the New Testament are basically used to be. It's the only lens you're given. Like you basically are only allowed to understand um, the women's roles in family and in the church through one or two, maybe three different verses that are picked out of the New Testament, and it distorts your view. You end up with a very distorted view of the way Jesus and Paul saw and treated women in the early church. And that's, to me, that's the biggest problem. And so I'm glad we're doing this topic, and I'm glad we're going to take time to point out the fact that Jesus was radically inclusive of women. And when you look at that, and when you look at even the way Paul spoke about women, you realize actually Paul is not um, not as much of a misogynist as you might have thought. And when you look at the church historically, the first century church, when you look at the, the church through the Renaissance, we look at the church through the um, 18th and 19th century, and even the 20th century church, the modern church, that 
without women, the church is lost. Mm-hmm. Honestly, uh, it, I mean, when you think about church, the people who really hold it all together, who manage the business of church, the people who uh, manage the social aspect of church, uh, the people who manage the, um, the, the, the loving, nurturing part of the church are all women. And whenever I think about, and I, I tell you, I wrote a, a whole chapter about this in my book, Deconstructing Religion, because uh, it, in my time in ministry, I spent a lot of time really helping to cultivate and grow women in ministry. And, and I really believe that if it weren't for leadership, if it weren't for the, um, the Junias and the Priscillas. Yeah. And if it weren't for these women, there would be no church as we know it. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that maybe the men should take their hands off of it mm-hmm. for a season and maybe just let the, and, and let the women run with it. Because honestly, the church as it is today is fucked up mm-hmm. and it's, and, it, and it's fucked up because of men. So, so if, if, if maybe if the men can humble themselves, take a step back, have a seat for a season, and let the women run with it as they had when the church was being built, maybe, maybe we might see some change. Hmm. Well, see, I, th- I, think, I think everyone's got some great insights so far. I, I think we're dealing with insecurity. We're dealing with... Uh, like like men who are totally insecure um, that they'll come up with things like, oh, women are too emotional to lead or the Bible says this and that, like all these excuses uh, on why on why they shouldn't. But I think it just comes down to the personal insecurity. And, and it's it's a reason why they'll cherry pick like certain certain passages right out of these scriptures that we're going to talk about today. But they'll cherry pick the ones about the women, but they won't. They won't listen to the ones about like elders. What, what's a what's a uh, a recommendation for an elder? Well, you got to be married once. Your kids have to be believers. All this and that. But they're not going to p- cherry pick that. They're going to cherry pick the other stuff because the other one impacts their livelihood, their uh, prestige, their income, all that kind of stuff. But they'll they'll happily cherry pick the other ones. And and to me, I think it just comes down to to uh, it's like a desire for power. It's you know what I think? I think that the church, uh, the men, they speak, they think of with their balls. They think of with their balls. And when you think of with your balls, you don't think it straight. <laughs> well, there's probably some of that too. <laughs> I'm Tony Montana, and I endorse this message. Every time I hear a sermon that's, you know, way off the rails now from uh, Derek, I'm just going to bring that image in. Oh, he's just speaking with his balls. I <laughs> that's going to that's going to bring me some amusement for like a couple of decades. So, thank you. It's two things I got in my life. I got my word and my balls, and I don't break either one of them for anybody. Well, you know, it's th- I, I find this to be just an interesting topic because, um, I mean, I'm clergy. You know, I got ordained um, almost five years ago, and. Uh, PhD in, in biblical studies, right? So I've, um, I've I've wrestled my way through all of these texts numerous times uh, over the years. But an early memory I have, and I, I want to speak this out for all um, all of the women out there who are remembering themselves as um, little girls or as tweens or as teens. 
had this strong memory of being in youth group. And uh, we were doing some kind of like spiritual assessment, like what are your spiritual gifts? Where, you know, where are you going to you know, road mapping for the future? And one of the professions on there was was clergy. And I, I just never thought about it. I've never thought about myself of that. I'd never seen a woman clergy. And my the, the denomination I was in growing up did have women clergy, but I had never encountered one. Um, and I just thought, I was like, oh, can women do that? Oh, maybe we could. And it just, I thought about it for years. And I went in a lot of different directions in life before I kind of circled back around to that. And it's actually not what I do professionally, but I am ordained. I'm just not serving a church right now for my living. And so I know that so many women uh, out there who are part of the the podcast uh, group that we have here have experienced um, maybe something similar. And scripture was used to squash that those callings that you have, right? And so we want to undo some of that damage uh, today. So let's talk about some of the problematic passages first, and then we'll get to some of the empowering passages. So which one seems like a good first one? We got Ephesians, we've got Colossians, we have 1 Corinthians, we have Titus, Timothy, Genesis. Uh, I feel like I could, you know, a little Russian roulette here. Which which one should we tackle first? Um, there are actually lots. I think, um, well, in, in, my, in, in my wrestlings back and forth with people on this topic, it's either 1 Timothy chapter 2 or 1 Corinthians 14. Um, that are the ones that pop up. So may, let's just do 1 Corinthians 14. Chronologically, it comes first, right? Yep, yep, let's do that. So it's one of the earlier texts. It's by, by well, Paul. Well, hang on, hang on just a second. Let me let me throw let me throw a wrench in here before okay. we get too, too far down the path. Because John chapter 4, I, I, I we can't go through this without talking about John chapter 4. Because, do you see that as a clobber passage or as an empowering no, no, passage? this is an empowering passage. Okay. But, the, but, but I'm, I'm bringing this out because... I want it to be made clear that Jesus endorsed women in ministry. And, and, and when we get to the clobber passages, both the, the, I mean, the Old Testament, we kind of understand that the, the whole patriarchy thing. But then in the New Testament, we, we come forward and allegedly we're enlightened and allegedly we have Christ. And in Christ, there's neither male nor female, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus dealt with this very specifically. And this particular woman, she was a Samaritan, which was the dregs of the earth. She drank from the colored fountain back in the in the in the days of Palestine. And uh and 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 then he goes and basically says, hey, go teach your people. That's an ordination. Okay. So so when we talk about all the rest of it, I want to make sure that that particular woman is called out because that in my mind squashes everything else. Because at, at the end of the day, do you believe Jesus or do you believe everyone else? Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's all. Let's, yeah, let's return. Let's uh, definitely return to her as one of the empowering women that we can lift up. I have a, um, a few thoughts about some of the things you said, Derek, but I uh, love the woman at the well. Uh, I use I use that story quite a lot. And, you know, as far as patriarchy, I think we can see Old and New Testament both under heavy veils of patriarchy. Much like with metaphysics, we see glimmers of uh, an, a radical egalitarianism that pops through from time to time within the Jesus movement. And then sometimes we see uh, heavy-handed patriarchy coming down. And so uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, then the passage in question right now, that's one of the clobber, clobber passages. Let's just read the relevant part. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Um, hold on, i my verses. I think it's uh, verse 34. Verse 34, 1434. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to start with verse um, 31, actually, for a very important reason. 
Uh, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. The spirits of prophecy uh, are subject to the prophets, for God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it has reached? Anyone who claims to be a prophet or have spiritual powers must acknowledge what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. It yeah. goes on a little bit after yeah. that. Uh, so I read a little bit before and a, real, a little bit after the relevant verses, and uh, I'll explain why in a moment. But yeah, this is a big one. This is used a lot to silence women, to have women. I mean, my experience is like women can't teach Sunday school. They can't be pastors. They can't preach. They kind of can't get up and, and kind of say anything in public other than announcements or have bake sales in church. Has that been all of your experience with this, the way that this passage has been used? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, so this was a deep one. Um, I, I'm going to try and do a quick brain dump of, of just how I usually respond to this. And then I want to hear you guys can, can chime in. I think, um, so for one thing, first Corinthians is like many of Paul's letters, um, a, a conversation that's going on. If you don't recognize that it's a conversation, you'll miss out on what's happening. Um, Paul says at the beginning of first Corinthians that this letter is a response letter to one they wrote to him. And so, uh, a lot of what's happening in first Corinthians is him responding specifically to things, questions they had asked him or issues or problems they were having in their, in their community. They wanted him to respond to. So he is sort of throughout the letter, he'll, he'll sort of make a reference to something that they had said in the letter and then he'll respond to it. And he'll make another reference to something that they said in the letter they wrote to him. And then he'll respond to it. Um, and if you understand that up till for, up until 1 Corinthians 14, Paul has talked a lot about how, how everyone in the body should use their gifts freely, um, how uh, he wants everyone to prophesy, including women. And his only instruction really about women prophesying in the church is just how they should cover their heads when they do it. But they're going to be standing. They're going to be prophesying. They're going to be speaking. And you're probably going to learn something then uh, when that happens. But Paul's totally fine with that. And then, so that's why, if you understand that, all of those things I just said, then when you come to 1 Corinthians 14, and you get to this part where it says, women should remain silent in the churches, they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says, um, we should stop and recognize that, first of all, the law does never say that. The law does not teach that women are not allowed to speak, and, and that women should be in submission. So we know that that's probably not Paul right there. That's probably him quoting their letter back to him. Um, now, the law did not say that, but the Talmud did. Uh, and so there may be what's happening is someone at, at the congregation in, in the Church of Corinth is appealing to some Jewish uh, writings, like from the Talmud, and trying to pull that into the way the church uh, operates. And so um, I think there's a good reason to think that maybe that's what's happening in this passage. And now another little thing that's important to notice is that when you get to the end of it, so that's verse 34, verse 35 is, uh, it says, if, if women want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, or it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. By the way, that's a quote from the Talmud. The Talmud says that. Talmud, okay. woman's the, the Talmud didn't really exist at this point. It did not exist in written form, but... The okay, way, so you're talking about an oral tradition. An oral tradition, oral tradition, oral tradition yes. Okay. For the rabbis, yes, you're right about that. Um, but, the, but the Talmud does say that, it, that a woman's voice is filthy and disgraceful. Again, the scripture, wow. the, the, the law, quote unquote, doesn't say this. Now, here's the other thing that I think is worth noting. If you go into the Greek in this passage, the very next verse 
in the Greek, there is a word that is not in most English translations. And basically, it's a word that's missing. Um, and the word is actually a single letter, but it's, uh, it's still a word that's an exclamation. And essentially, the word, uh, the, the word that's missing is the word for what? And Sorry, then what verse do you mean, Keith? Sorry? What verse? Verse 36. Thanks. And then the very next verse is this. So, so in other words, let's say you read that part. Women should remain silent in the churches. The law says they should shut their mouths. And, and the law says that their voices are disgraceful and disgusting, which, by the way, we all know, and Paul also know, knows the law does not say that. And now, if your English Bible said this, at, right after that, what? Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. What is that? Everything you've read before this point, where he's telling women how to stand, how to preach, how to prophesy, how to, how to use their giftings freely in the body. So in my mind, that passage is Paul quoting back to them something he thinks is ridiculous, responding to it and saying, what? What are you guys talking about? Just pay attention to what I've told you up to this point, and you'll be fine. So what you're saying is that Paul Paul is coming out against women. He's he's basically he's he's basically putting down something else that that they had written. Prior. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the way I understand that passage. Well, yeah. and and I'll and I'll recommend Lucy Pepiot's book on this, and that's her approach. She um, the foreword is by Doug Campbell, so take from that what you will. But she uh, approaches First Corinthians eleven through fourteen in the same way that that. Uh, Professor Campbell approaches Romans one through four, and I'll be real quick, and then and then I'll and then I'll kick it back to to Derek or Katie. Let me just remind people that in Romans sixteen, he tells the people to welcome Phoebe, a deacon, into the church. She is going to read that letter to Romans. Mm-hmm. Now, now, if Paul is sending a woman to go speak in church to read his letter, then something else then a plain reading of the text is going on in Corinthians, or Paul is just completely contradictory, and therefore we should really nothing, listen to nothing of, of what he's saying. So th- there's no way someone who says that he doesn't that women should be shut up in church, but then send a woman to go speak in church to read arguably his, his most important letter. Right. So I'm going to, um, so Keith, I'm going to actually disagree with you on some of this. Um, not It's not a full disagreement. It's, um, I, th- I think, I'm going to go in Occam's razor. Um, I think the simplest explanation here is maybe a little more straightforward, at least for me in the way that I understand this passage. Um, yeah, definitely Paul is writing back. I mean, this is like letter B, right? First Corinthians isn't really first Corinthians. Right. Um, he's writing back. This is an issue that we're having. Um, the reason I read the passage the way I did with a few verses before and a few verses after is because if we go straight from verse 33, to verse 37, it makes a lot more sense. So for instance, if we say, uh, the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. Anyone who claims to be a prophet or to have spiritual powers must acknowledge what I am writing to you as a command of the Lord. That makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. It's more likely that verses 33b uh, as in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the church through the end of the passage is in a, a later edition, a later interpolation uh, that gets put in there, or it's misplaced and should be somewhere else in the particular, you know, in the um, in the chapter. Um, the edition that you were talking about, the Greek word, I'm not, I'm not seeing that in my textual variants, so I'm not 
I was just, I'm just confused about that, like where that might be coming from. Yeah, I can say. I'd be curious about that because that would make the whole thing like an exclamation or yeah, a question rather than a command. Yeah. But I'm just not, my little, my, my Greek Bible doesn't have that possibility. Right. Um, after in it. So I, I'd be curious about that. I don't think it's impossible given what we've had about Paul, but um, what we know about Paul, but you know, Paul, um, I think he gets halfway there on women. I, do, I don't think he gets all the way there. And I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I mean, I, I wish things were otherwise, but I'm comfortable with that and like him getting it kind of as far as he could um, with his own patriarchal um, lenses. So or we could throw out the whole conspiracy theory part and perhaps that the author of Romans is not the same as the author of first Corinthians. Yeah. So, you know, when I go, when I look up, I'm just, I just jumped real quick here to Katie to like the blue letter Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, it actually, in that verse actually does in the English have the word what. And then when I look under the Greek there, uh, it has the strongs. uh, It has the word in the Greek and it has the strongs. Uh, reference for it. So, I, it, I mean, maybe it depends on the version you're looking at, but uh, there are versions of the Greek text of First uh, Corinthians 14 that do in 14, uh, 26 have the word uh, what? What? Um, can you read the English translation, how that would read? Yeah, hold on. Uh, yeah, okay, so, yeah, 14, 26. So it says... Um, Oh, well, it just I'll start in 35. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is, shame, it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So the what would be the very first verse in 36. The very first word, yes, in, in verse 36. Okay. Um, I'm just... Here I'm curious about it, and we'll like do a little do a little more critical research on that particular passage. Um, but like what we do see is that there's a lot of variants that put verses 34 and 35 at a different place in in the chapter, which tells me that this has been a question for a really long time. Like people early 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 editors of the Bible were also struggling about what to do with this passage because it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense to put this command about women being silent in the middle of this discussion about who should, you know, the spirits of prophets um, in the church, right? And so I think that should give us all pause. And for me, anyway, what I see is that the question about um, women in the church, like as Matt were saying, there's a lot of ma- f- uh, fragile male egos out there in the early days. And we probably see that reflected here, whether it's by Paul or a later inter- uh, uh, someone who later inserted this in. Yeah, no, no. And I will say um, I have I have looked at uh, like David Bentley Hart, who's my hero um, in his translation of the passage in his New Testament. Uh, he does put 34 and 35 in brackets. And he does say that they do present a textual problem and that, as you're saying, there's the possibility that that was added in later by someone else. But at any rate, I think we can agree with this. That's not Paul either way. Paul isn't the one saying that. Uh, maybe, I mean, I mean, it's up, for, it's up as a question for me. It's, it, Paul's not always super affirming. Um, so I also, I also want to lift up that like, <laughs> this is, Paul is a problem for women, right? I think he gets a lot of things right and he gets some things wrong. Yeah. So I mean, it's not, yeah. 
And that, and that, it's, that in itself, you know, I, I think we've talked around and about about doing sort of like a sympathy for Paul episode um, to try and like let's dig into Paul a little bit and decide like because because I, I mean, I mean, look, I'm not a huge Paul fan, to be honest, but I do think sometimes he gets a bad rap. And I think sometimes um, I think Paul's bad rap comes a lot of the times from like books of the Bible that I'm not even sure he really wrote. So uh, it's kind of like I'm, I'm an, I don't want to. I don't want to blame him for something that has his name on it, but I'm not sure he even really wrote it. Oh yeah. Well, let's talk about one of those next. How does, um, what do we think about shifting the conversation to either first Timothy or Colossians and Ephesians? Which one should we take on next? Yeah. Um, first Timothy. I'm sorry. Which one did you say? say? Derek goes for first Timothy. Yeah. Well, let me do, let me do first Timothy real quick. And then, um, and then I'm pretty much out because I think (laughs) these are the two that I, that I have uh, looked at a lot. Yeah, this one comes up all the time, all the time. Um, we've all, and, it, and it's such an easy go-to, like whenever, um, you know, whenever there's a discussion about women's power. So. It's funny how uh, Paul goes to Timothy about suffering not a woman to teach. And, but he he heaps praise on, on Timothy's mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Mm-hmm, yeah. And 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 I I find that I've always found that kind of ironic. Why would he, why would he say that, and then say you know he affirmed them and then disaffirm them, and and that that you know that's always created a, a quandary for me in terms of and it, you know the the whole well the whole Paul thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So that so let's I I really like to hear you guys' thoughts on that. Um, on Tim, just on that in general about like Timothy yeah. and yeah, I mean, you know, why why would he why would he tell Timothy, you know, I, I suffer not a woman to teach, but then he affirms uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother. Right, well, I think he's talking about certain women yes. in, in the church. Yeah. I mean, and if you go to chapter one of his, oh, well, let's assume he wrote it just for well, sake of did, argument. He didn't, he didn't <laughs> differentiate. He didn't split the hair. Well, no, he says, he says, I urge you, Timothy, uh, well, I urge you as, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Right. So I, I think, I think when he's, when he's uh, not affirming these women in, in Timothy's church, it's certain people that they would have known who they were. Maybe they were, who knows what they were doing. They were teaching whatever. I mean, it's kind of like to make that, I mean, it's just these women that are a problem. Yeah. It, it's not that they're women. It's just these right. people well, are a problem. In First Corinthians, I get that because he says, um, you know, not letting your women. He was speaking to a specific group of people. Yes, but but when you when you get to First Timothy, he's talking about he's speaking in a more generic sense. Well, well but, no. but but you're not. But he's not writing the letter to you. Like he's writing the letter. It's like you writing a letter to your boy. You guys know the context. You know what's going on. You, it might not be clear right. to someone I mean, reading it later. Here, here's the thing. You and I know that. But the average person that's that's reading scripture, they're reading it as authoritative, that this is what yeah. it is. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so we're they're sifting, not parsing it like we are. Yeah. So we're, we're sifting through the layers of sort of original content, original intent, but also impact today. And so, you know, we all know the impact today is excruciating when passages like this are used. Yeah. Um, so let me let me just read um, a little bit from First First uh, Timothy chapter two, um, what it what it is, and then we can kind of um, parse it out a little bit. Uh, so I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, 
not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Uh, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And here's a kicker uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Mm-hmm. And this is the part where she shall be saved through childbearing. I love that's my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> but provided that they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Right. So, so um, yeah. this has so many layers of bullshit. Yes. Let's so talk about it. Let, me, let me try to jump on that. I agree with Matt, by the way. I, I do think that in the beginning of Timothy, he's talking about, he tells Timothy to stay behind in Ephesus. There's your clue, by the way. They're in Ephesus. That matters. And two, he says there is there are certain people that are causing problems. And then so right after that, when he says, I do not permit a woman. In fact, I think even in the Greek, verse 12 could be could be translated, I am not now permitting a woman to teach. Meaning I used to, but in this particular case, I am not doing so. But it okay. is a woman that, that he's not permitting to teach. So let me just real quick try to, try to um, provide some context that I think is missing for us today. That if we don't understand the context of the place and the time and the culture, that this letter was written into, we will miss so much. Hold on, okay. before you do that, how, where are you saying it's a woman? First um, Corinthians two. Oh, sorry, First Timothy two, uh, verse twelve. And Keith, you're pissing me. You're pissing me off, man, because you're you're digging Paul out, man. Yeah. So before out. that, it's women, but there it's a woman. Yes. In verse eleven, it. it says, "A woman should learn in quietness and full submission." I do not permit, or I am not now at this time permitting a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Um, and I, w- I just want to say, too, I honestly think if you take all of Paul's teaching in context, the, 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 you know who else Paul doesn't permit to teach in order to gain authority over man is another man. In other words, the point of teaching is not to gain authority over anybody. Uh, it's not just a, a woman shouldn't do this, like a man shouldn't do it either. We're not supposed to put authority over each other in a, because just because we're a teacher. But, yeah, that, but that's, that's, another, that's not the modern application of it. Because yeah, I know, I know we, we have made it that, but right. I, I think that's just worth my note, noting that. Yeah. So real quick. Um, it's good stuff. The fact that, Paul, that Timothy is in Ephesus, that this church that has a problem with women specifically is in Ephesus, because Ephesus was the center for Artemis worship. Artem, there was a, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis in the book of Acts when Paul goes to, Ar- goes to Artemis. I'm sorry, goes to, goes to Ephesus. Um, there's like a riot that forms and a massive mob is like for like something like three hours is chanting constantly great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Like these people in Ephesus were goo goo, crazy bonkers for Artemis. They loved Artemis worship. So understand Artemis worship is a female cult. Artemis didn't uh, understand that Artemis worship, Artemis worship teaches that women were formed first and then men, which is I think in verse 13, why Paul emphasizes the opposite. It's it's he's it's he's trying to emphasize again we're not followers of Artemis we're not followers of Christ and he's trying to reframe it he wants Timothy to reframe it back under this idea of of uh, following Christ um, and then so the way that women would again it's a female cult so the way women would worship Artemis uh, at that time in Ephesus was they would dress uh, elaborately and they would adorn their hair. And they would wear expensive clothing and they would braid their hair with uh, with all these, you know, kind of things in their hair. That's why in in First Timothy 2, like in verse uh, 8, 9, and 10, he says, I want women to dress modestly and decency and propriety, not adorning themselves 
with these elaborate hairstyles. It's not that he doesn't like women to dress up. He's saying, hey, I know that in Ephesus, these women were raised under Artemis worship, and they're still doing that. They're still acting as if they're worshiping Artemis, and I would, I want them not to do that anymore because it looks to outsiders as if they're still worshiping Artemis. And now, again, the reason why a woman would do such a thing, why would a woman adorn her hair and dress, you know, in these elaborate ways? Well, it's so that if she was pregnant, she and her child would be saved in childbirth or childbearing. So later on, when Paul says, and women will be saved in childbearing or in childbirth, he doesn't mean that by having babies, they'll get saved and go to heaven. What he means is, hey, hey, females in Artemis who are pregnant, you can trust God. Yeah. And if you follow Christ and you, and you trust God, you, you will be saved in childbearing. In other words, he's trying to assure them they don't need to have Jesus on the side and Artemis over here to cover them in their, in their birthing process. So I think if you understand Artemis worship, you understand that that was, that had a kind of a stranglehold on the culture there in Ephesus, you'd have an understanding of some of the struggles that were going on in that church and why Paul says the things that he says that frankly, outside of that context seem really crazy to us and very arbitrary. Like why is Paul against, you know, makeup and dressing nice? You know, in first Corinthians too, that, that, um, that those clobber passages were, um, I, I was taught that, you know, this had to do with uh, Paul's reaction to Diana worship. So you have Artemis worship in Ephesus and Diana worship in Corinth. So, so, so basically what Paul was doing in, in both cases, and again, this is what, what, what I have been taught, is that Paul was basically trying to swing the pendulum back the other way. Yeah, I think that's something he's trying to correct. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah exactly. I think there's, there's some of that, but there's also flat out kind of um, patriarchal culture here trying to tell women what to do. I, you know, I, I think we can explain some of this with, with Artemis worship or, you know, or Aphrodite uh, in Corinth. And then some of it's just like some man writing, whether yeah. it's Paul, whether it's not. Telling Katie, we're, we're, just, we're world. just mansplaining. Don't don't pay us any attention. Yeah, no, I mean, like, but it's it's both. Right. But like that can yeah. explain some of it, but not all of it in in my mind. Yep. I, and I, I yeah. agree. I agree with both sides. I do. And so, yeah, it's more layers. I mean, layers, right? Uh, here. And by the way, I got to visit ancient Ephesus about 10 years ago. And I got to see that statue of Artemis. And it is stunning. It is stunning. It was a, it was a little bucket moment in my life. So um, I can identify a little bit with these ancient Ephesian women. This is the one with the multiple breasts, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it is stunning. It is housed in the uh, Ephesian Museum today. Mm-hmm. So I encourage everyone to take a look at that. Um, it, it, part of this, too, is um, we see, too, the early Christian interpretation of uh, Adam and Eve. And I find this um, uh, deeply problematic, right? This interpretation of Adam and Eve that was becoming popular around this time, because whoever wrote First Timothy, and just for listeners, mo- most likely the um, historical Paul did not write First Timothy. It was most likely a disciple of Paul. Right. But um, they're crediting kind of the Adam and Eve story for the way that women can be bossed around here, right? Because uh, Eve deceived Adam. Uh, she gets to be able to be told to be silent. And then she can only be saved through childbearing. Um, this is not a passage I have a lot of crit. I've not really done much critical study, but I do. Can I recommend a resource for everyone on this? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So my my uh, friend and colleague, Rebecca Sulavog, it's a, a Scandinavian last name. Uh, she wrote a book called Birthing Salvation, and she talks about gender and class in early Christianity. And this is the verse that she explores, this concept about women being saved through childbearing. So anyone who feels like reading a super brilliant um, take uh, on this passage, I would definitely recommend that book. And we'll put I'll put the link in the show notes. So. Well, Matt, what, a, um, what about you? Where are you on this text? How have you seen this used um, used or misused in church? Any any kind of thoughts to wrap us up on talking about First Timothy? Yeah, I mean, there's so many we could talk about, all the verses, and I just want to, like, maybe after after we cover this one, um, we can uh, do some in the Patreon bonus round, like maybe Titus or maybe even some others. But yeah, with, with First Timothy, I mean, look... I, like I said at the start, like this is one of those reasons why I don't always care what the Bible says. Like I think I think there's probably we're probably all right here in in some way to some extent. I think Paul wasn't as bad as some people say, but I don't think he was perfect, and he's a product of his time. And this is of course assuming he wrote this or would have endorsed this letter to Timothy. Um, there's obviously some problems here, and look, I mean, if we're gonna have any scripture at all, whatever faith tradition we are. It's either life affirming or life denying. Yeah. And and if we're gonna clobber people with with things, we missed the whole fucking point. And I think even Paul, as problematic as he is or can be, would probably say something to that extent. Like I, I think I think just personally, this is my opinion, he would be appalled. Pardon the pardon the part pardon bro. I didn't even mean to say that. He would be appalled. <laughs> now I'm gonna roll with it. I'm doubling down. I love it. Um, he would be appalled the way his his letters are are being used um in, in, in today's church. I'm just guessing that. And so whatever we think about Paul, I, I think we we either just like anything in the scriptures, like we either bring life to people or we bring death. And if we're bringing death, we got we gotta we've completely missed the point. Right. And absolutely. I think, um, and this is why we're heretics, you know, um, there are, I mean, there are passages like this where I feel like I personally have made sense of it enough to say, okay, I, here's what I think is being said and, and how, why it doesn't really apply to us today. Um, but, but honestly, there are lots of passages that I can just read and say, nope, I disagree with that. I mean, I, that probably is what they thought at the time, but I don't have to. And so I can give myself permission to say, no, I don't need to do that. I don't need to believe that just because uh, Paul might have believed that. So, um, yeah. Or because I, orthodoxy says so. Yeah. Well, I, I love that dynamic. Orthodoxy says so. That could be the name of a like T-shirt or book or community, Derek. That's great. <laughs> but I love Mr. that dynamic. I'll make it so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the dynamic flow with scripture. Like, right, scripture, if we talk about it this way, it actually is alive. Uh, this is what makes it relevant. The ability for us to say, um, know that part after some thoughtful consideration, know that part. Is it resonating with me? And this part is, I think it's really important, especially when we're talking about passages as um, deeply problematic as some of the clobber passages and to find, to see where we can find the life affirming, um, yeah, tree of life that scripture is and should be for us. So with that in mind, we have a, a little bit of a, of a switch of a new game plan. Um, we little producers notes as we've been having this episode. Um, we are going to talk about the affirming passages uh, in scripture of women. Oh my gosh, there's so many. We're going to have a really fun time. We decided it's important Ooh. enough. We're going to devote a whole episode to it. So the woman at the well, 
that Derek brought up. We're going to talk about Phoebe, about Priscilla, about Abigail. I, my favorite, Jail. I can't wait to talk about her uh, in, a, in the next episode. And in the bonus round, uh, we're going to talk about my favorite passages to um, deconstruct, which are uh, Colossians and Ephesians about those um, male as the head of the household and women and enslaved people and children answering to him, maybe Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and we're going to get there in just a minute. So um, any final thoughts as we're as we're starting to wrap up? No, I'm just I mean, I'm glad that we added on the uh, on the fly. We added on another whole episode because there's so much we didn't get to. So I'm just stoked that we're, we're able to do that because I like that we, we did that with the LGBTQ one. It's like we can talk about clobber all day long and we do that and we can deconstruct all that. But but what about the life giving stuff? So ending exactly. ending rather on a uh, ending with affirmation is, is important. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, are we ready to? Yeah, uh, if, if you guys got, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. But I just want to remind everyone before we uh, before we get into our Patreon episode, um, I want to remind everyone that we do have a website. It is heretichappyhour.com. and on that, on the top header up at the up at the very top, we got a bookstore. And if you click on that, you're going to notice all those names are heretics of the week that we've had on this show. They've got books. You want to buy them there because you're going to get 15% off. You're going to support the show and uh, you're going to dive deeper with some of your favorite guests. So heretichappyhour.com, check out that bookstore. Cool. And we'd love to have you in our Facebook groups. Heresy After Hours is open for everyone. So click on there, join us. We got a, a whole a couple thousand heretics uh, asking really great questions. And then we have another Facebook group where I love to do Facebook Lives about the nitty gritty. And you only get access to that if you're a member of our Patreon group. So if you join Patreon, then you can join our exclusive Facebook group uh, where that's associated directly with the host of the podcast. Oh, yes. And uh, did you say Patreon? That's right. Patreon, by the way, uh, this is where people who just Really, frankly, they're obsessed uh, with the podcast, and um, they can't they can't get enough. And so, uh, we appreciate their financial support. They support the podcast, and and as a way of saying thank you, uh, we record bonus interviews, uh, footage, bonus uh, podcast conversations that we record just and only for our subscribers to Patreon, our supporters on Patreon. Uh, we've even added new tiers now. So there's a ten dollar tier. We also get PDFs from uh, each of us. Uh, a $25 level where we do Zoom calls and, and videos and things like that. Uh, we even have a $100 level if you're like really crazy insane. And uh, But no matter what level you're at, we love you. And we want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us. Um, we love you and we appreciate you very, very much. And you want to go out to iTunes and give the Heretic Happy Hour podcast a five-star rating, you old heathen. If you don't do it, I'm going to come and swatch you upside the head, you old fisheye fool. <laughs> is is that a Sanford and Son reference? Yep. On oh, Esther. I am so old. I got that. And, and you're probably the only one that did. I'm probably the only one. Me and you. I saw me, me and you. I saw you run once. <laughs> once. <laughs> you guys are old. You call it iTunes. It's called Apple Podcast now, Derek. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. I, I tried to go to iTunes and the time, and I'm like, the hell happened to iTunes? Well, you know, the show notes still say iTunes, damn it. <laughs> you're like, you're like uh, Anchorman. He just reads what's there. <laughs> I like scotch. Scotchy, scotch, scotch. 